Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Why are we talking about this film at Christmas, you Grinch? Hello and welcome to this seasonal and festive episode of Soho Bites. I'll stop doing the voice now. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I know what you're thinking. Hang on, you're thinking. Didn't an episode of Soho Bites come out like two days ago or something? Well, yes, it did. That was episode 45, the very delayed final episode of our three-part special about Jesse Matthews. But this is our slightly delayed episode 46, the Christmas special. So, Merry Christmas. There aren't all that many Christmas films set in Soho, so I considered myself very lucky to stumble across a film called Don't Open Till Christmas from 1984. When I actually watched the film, though, I realised that I hadn't been lucky at all because Don't Open Till Christmas is one of the worst films I've ever seen and my life will always be slightly worse for the fact that I've seen it. In fact, I've watched it three times now and I feel I will never recover. Ching, ching, ching. By the magic of pre-recorded audio material, I'll be going to a well-known Soho pub later to talk about Don't Open Till Christmas with the legendary David McGillivray. David has been on the show before and is a writer, an actor, film producer, a critic, and all sorts of other things too. But most importantly, he's a friend of Soho Bites. And what's Christmas all about? That's right, drinking, which is why we met in a pub. The last time I made a Christmas episode, the film we discussed was the brilliant Muppets Christmas Carol, which is clever, funny, touching, and always brings a magical Christmas tear to the eye. Don't Open Till Christmas, on the other hand, is a cheaply made, incomprehensible, tawdry mess involving multiple gruesome murders of people dressed as Santa Claus. So if you're listening to this within earshot of children, you might want to wait until they're no longer around because the descriptions of filmic violence in the upcoming episode, including some fruity language and some mentions of delicate body parts, are, in my opinion, not suitable for younger ears. Don't Open Till Christmas from 1984 is set mostly in Soho, with some other scenes in Scotland Yard, Covent Garden, Notting Hill and the London Dungeons. If you can call the film's plot a plot, 
The plot rambles all over the place and doesn't really make sense, but the premise is that it's a few days before Christmas and the West End is in the grip of fear because a deranged maniac is going around the place murdering men dressed as Santa Claus. Despite news of this Yuletide killing spree being plastered all over the front pages, department store Santas are still leaving their places of work dressed in their outfits, beard and everything, and are aimlessly wandering the streets, sometimes in a state of inebriation. They're just sitting ducks, man. Each of the many murders is carried out in a different, ludicrously violent way. So, for your information, I have prepared this handy cut-out-and-keep guide to those gruesome Santa Claus murders. Santa number one is stabbed in the stomach while engaged in a spot of rumpy-pumpy in a car down a Soho back alley. Santa number two is handing out presents on stage at a nightclub when he receives a spear through the back of the head that pops out of his mouth. Santa number three is selling roast chestnuts in one of those famously deserted Soho streets. After being garroted, he ends up with his face forced into his hot nuts. Santa number four died happy because he was chuckling about something to himself until he was shot in the mouth with a revolver. Santa number five is a lady Santa, so he's obviously wearing nothing but a g-string under her very loose and flappy costume. In a surprising twist, the maniac decides not to kill her. Who said chivalry was dead? Santa number six is a shy, lonely fellow chatting to the girl behind the glass in a Soho peep show when he gets stabbed in the neck. Santa number seven stumbles around the London dungeons while being stalked by our festive madman and then gets a sword in his guts. Santas number eight and nine are attacked outside a circus tent. One gets hoofed in the groin with a boot knife and the other gets stabbed when he tries to come to his friend's rescue. Santa number 10 very sadly ends up with an axe in his face on stage at the Piccadilly Theatre, interrupting Caroline Monroe singing a song called I'm coming to get you. And Santa number 11. Those clever filmmakers have left the best till last. Poor old Santa is standing at a urinal doing his business when the nasty man sneaks out from behind a cubicle with a cutthroat razor and slices off his Christmas cracker. Happy Christmas. We'll hear more about those clever filmmakers from David McGillar very shortly. But according to the credits, the director was Edmund Purdom, who also plays Chief Inspector Harris of Scotland Yard. It was written by Derek Ford and Alan Birkinshaw and was produced by the notorious Dick Randall. Nearly all the performances are excruciatingly bad. I don't want to mention any specific names. It doesn't seem fair. They were working with a horrendous script with, from the looks of it, no rehearsal at all. But Alan Lake, as a dogged reporter, stands out as being less terrible than everybody else. I had quite a short shortlist of people I thought would be willing to come on Soho Bites to talk about this appalling travesty of a film, and David McGillivray was right at the top of that list. David has written extensively about British exploitation films, including in his excellent book Doing Rude Things, A History of the British Sex Film. Don't Open Till Christmas isn't really a sex film, but many of the people involved in it had at least one foot in that murky world, so he gets a few mentions in David's book. On a rainy December afternoon, I met up with David at a well-known and quite noisy Soho pub to discuss Soho and, of course, Don't Open Till Christmas. David, Merry Christmas. Cheers. 
Should we do a little clink by your microphone so it pick, picks up there? Yes, please, just to add that seasonal quality. Merry Christmas to you too, Dom. Nice to be here in the heart of Soho. In, in the Golden Lion. Yes, this place has got history. So I hear... Well, let's not talk about the film for now. Let's talk about the fact that this used to be a notorious homosexual pickup place. And you said on the way up the stairs that two serial killers picked up their victims in the Golden Lion here. I'm, I'm afraid so, yes. I mean, I'm not going to name names because you can't trust me on any facts at all, but I can safely say that at least one serial killer picked his victims up in the Golden Line when it was a gay venue. But this is many years ago now, and there's no sign now that this was ever a gay pub. Or a murderer's pub. Um, no, they're probably not proud of that, but there's a lot of other history here as well, and there's a poster on the wall just behind my head here, for the Royalty Theatre, a Soho theatre. There's none left. This one was bombed during World War II and then demolished. Yeah, on Dean Street. Yes. Very nice. So we're actually here to talk about the festive, fun family favourite. Oh, try that again. The festive, fun family favourite, Don't Open Till Christmas, which I'd come across I think about a year ago and I had it on a back burner for just this time of year I then watched it and realized it's absolutely awful and horrible and terrible but you quite like it don't you why are we talking about (laughs) this film at Christmas you Grinch because it's one of the worst Christmas films ever made I, I, I don't like it no I'm contradicting you there straight away but a lot of people do it's important to say that people do enjoy this ghastly film. If you go on to IMDb, there's more than one person there claiming to really like this film, which is surprising because it's a film about Santa Clauses being horribly murdered. In lots of different ways. Before we started recording, we mentioned that it's a very difficult film to follow plot-wise. I mean, the, the basis is that there's a serial killer killing people just as Santa Claus. Could you attempt to give me a synopsis? No, um, <laughs> because the film makes no sense at all, and that's because it's a salvage job. Famously, the film was in production for something like two years because everything was going wrong. One director left, he was replaced by another who was fired. At least one other director took over, possibly two. One of them was my friend Ray Self. And we're going back now to um, the early 80s, the fag end of the exploitation era in the UK. And I remember Ray running me a sequence that he was editing of a Santa Claus at a urinal. You know what's coming up, I don't do, you? Yes. Somebody... What's coming off? Well, the killer, yes, creeps up behind him, slices off his penis, and the poor victim then pisses blood. <laughs> I remember looking at this and thinking, are you really going to get, get away with this, Ray? I mean, I'm unshockable, but I thought, do people want to see this at Christmas? <laughs> no. <laughs> And then the poor old cleaning lady comes in and Santa is there sort of straddled over a couple of urinals covered in blood. And um, luckily you don't see any um, 
penis detachment. Uh, yeah, well, as far as I remember, and it's a while since I've seen this film, you're, you're correct. I don't really want to watch this film again, Dom. I watched it last night, just oh, so that you so don't I have, didn't to. have to. Yeah. Thank you. So, the credited director is Edmund Purdom, who's also the lead he plays in Chief Inspector Harris. I heard that he took the job, took the part, the acting part, on the condition that he could direct it but it sounds like he didn't direct it oh it's all so confusing dom but all roads lead back to the producer dick randall who was a tin pot movie mogul he was a sleazier version of the british producer harry allen towers Dick Randall had connections as well. I mean, let's not forget that he put Anita Ekberg into one of his films. He also used Edmund Purdom in a slasher called Pieces. And it couldn't have been that bad an experience for him because just a few months later, Edmund Purdom, a former Hollywood star, agreed to appear in Don't Open Till Christmas. But yes, the rumour is that he said he would only do it if he could direct it. Well, it turned out that he couldn't direct. (laughs) And, I mean, who knows what happened next, really, because almost everybody involved in the film is now dead. There's one exception. Who's that? Alan Birkinshaw, who took over towards the end who knows what he did i think he certainly rewrote stuff he may have refilmed scenes but he's still with us and on a future episode of soho bites dom you could get him in here even into the golden lion where we're sitting now and you could be told the truth at last i think i will You don't have his phone number, do you, by any chance? I don't have him on speed dial, no. But uh, he's probably in his 80s now, but um, still around, hasn't worked for a while. But when I was in Soho in the 80s, and I was working for Dick Randall, that's another story, periodically Alan Birkinshaw would be in his office working on one project or another. When you come in? I'm most grateful to you, Miss Bialski. Especially after the, um, well... My father had no enemies. We know that, Miss Bialski. We know that. Well, Inspector, you've got your first clue. The one I gave you last night, this drunken head. I'm afraid uh, we don't have very many clues, Miss. Uh, there were no fingerprints on it. It was the costume that he was wearing. He was the victim of another... Santa murder. So Ray Self, he's credited as editor on the film, and I don't normally... Editing's one of those things, it's a bit like sound design, which is what I do in my day job. You don't notice it until it's bad. I suppose, I suppose you notice brilliant sound design and brilliant editing and terrible, but and, and the vast majority, the 90% in the middle, you don't notice. I did notice the editing in this film. For um, a good reason or a bad? Not for a good reason, uh. no. The sequence I'm thinking about is one of the Santas, possibly Santa number five, number six. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Yeah. He is drunk and gets chased by some punk rockers, because in the 1980s, punk rockers were the scariest people you could ever uh, encounter. And, and this is in the Isle of Dogs, I think. He runs away from them and he ends up still drunk on Tooley Street. So for people who don't know London, that's an hour's walk probably 
if, especially if you're drunk. And he walks through some random fire escape just to escape from these awful punk rockers. And he finds himself in the London dungeons. So you have already 20 or 30 ready-made sets. So it's very cheap. Cheap. And he walks around being scared of things. But the editing in that sequence is so terrible. So it sounds like it might not have been him that edited it. It might be. Because he sounds like he was a fairly decent film editor. He was a competent professional in that department. But it sounds like he was actually on directing duties and some other numpty did the, the editing. Impossible to know, as I say. But in, in fairness to Ray, he could only edit what he was given. And the chances are that whoever directed that sequence, and we don't know, uh, just couldn't direct. So Ray was unable to put it together. But Ray Self was a jack-of-all-trades who got me into this business in 1972. And uh, we remained friends. We worked on a, quite a few projects together. And uh, as I say, then I discovered that he was working on this Dick Randall picture, which I never saw at the time because, you know, let's not forget, it was never released. <laughs> oh, wasn't it? No, was it straight to VHS? It, it was straight to VHS. And that's the only version you can now see on YouTube. It's obviously a VHS copy cut but if you're desperate to see this film we're talking about you can see it on youtube for nothing well i'll put a link in the show notes to that for people i mean i can't imagine people are going to want to watch it well i i hope of course that everyone will be so fascinated by what we're talking about that they won't be able to resist house lights lq1 fly q1 go <laughs> Fans of Talking Pictures TV, and I know that's most of our listeners, will be familiar with Cara Munro. She's she does the Cellar Club Friday and Saturday night. Late night, I think Friday Saturday. Yes, the Cellar Club. Cellar is Club, it? yeah. But in this film, she has a, a cameo as a pop star. I mean, she, all her films were kind of horror films and that kind of thing, but this seems to be bottom of the barrel for her. I you could thought. get Carolyn in on the show as well. I mean, she's very much with us, as we've just yeah, yeah. established, but rumour has it that at this time she was trying to get her singing career going. There's every likelihood that she wasn't paid for what is essentially a music video stuck in the middle of the film. And I think whoever wrote the song was also involved in the film as well. But now I'm guessing again, there's so many imponderables with regard to this film. I suppose we ought to, before we go any further, just run through a brief chronology of this film. As I say, the likelihood is that it was set up by Dick Randall because he wanted another f slasher like pieces um, set in London and he got Derek Ford to write it. Derek Ford was a pioneer of British exploitation. He was just untalented. I can say this now because he's long gone, but I interviewed him for my book, Doing Rude Things. Even he said that um, one of his films, The Wife Swappers, was one of the worst films ever made. So... <laughs> Who'd have thought from a title like that? Honest to himself, but anyway, they ended up with this 
probably crappy old script from Derek, got Edmund Purdom to direct it at some point during the shoot. Was it at the end? Was it during the shoot? We don't know. Edmund Purdom just walked. The chances are he walked during production because a lot of the time during the film, Edmund Purdom disappears from the film. The film is handed over to the film's writer, Derek Ford. This is definite. Derek Ford did take over briefly. He may have shot the scene involving the peep show because that's very much Derek Ford's stock in trade milieu. It just looks like Derek Ford to me, that sequence. But then he's fired and somebody else takes over. Now, Ray Self told me that he took over and I don't think he would have lied. In my book, I said he was handed the poisoned chalice of being the third director on Don't Open Till Christmas. But did Alan Birkinshaw do some directing as well? We just don't know. They ended up with a film that makes absolutely no sense whatever. The script is terrible and it's non-sequential. You know, you don't, as you've already said, you don't understand exactly what is happening. Day and night shots happen simultaneously what time of day is it what time of year is it it's supposed to be Christmas Eve on yes. some of the scenes and they're just like people just there's no Christmas decorations up in the street exactly people just going around their ordinary business <laughs> they had to make something of this film they were determined to finish it well done them for actually achieving that come on lover boy put your arm around mama keep her warm it's cold outside yeah <laughs> right um Maybe we should wait for Jerry. I don't think Jerry got a single shot in detail. We all lovely. Uh oh. Here they come. They'll think we're a couple of gays. Christ! And we haven't got any keys. Run for it. Beat it. Don't leave me here. Well, they've seen us. It's a girl. It's very difficult. To, there are no actual. There's no protagonist. As such, I suppose it's maybe Edward Purdom. Would he be the central character, or is it the... Hard to know, isn't it? Is it Kate, whose father is the second Santa to be killed, or is it the girl who doesn't get a name, but she's the girl in the peep show? Yes, true. Is she the protagonist? Um, Is Alan Lake the protagonist? It's just... It's impossible to know, and also probably in that Derek Ford wrote this script, this probably wasn't a priority for him. He wouldn't have known himself what he was doing. He would have cobbled this together. This era that we're talking about, the early 80s, is it the height of the video nasty era? Or is that slightly earlier? We're moving out of sexploitation. We're we're moving into video nasties. And how on earth this film was never included in that list of video nasties illegal violent videos i i have no idea but as far as i know it wasn't included on that list of about 60 70 films that if a shopkeeper was found selling they would be fined or jailed and famously another acquaintance of mine david hamilton grant was jailed for distributing a video nasty which one was that nightmares in a damaged brain (laughs) 
and he went to jail because he distributed a version which hadn't been passed by the BBFC. It's crazy, isn't it? That crazy that, times. Yeah. So th this group of people who made this film, it seems a weird thing to do. Two years to shoot the film, that takes dedication. It feels like it was knocked off in about 45 minutes. Why are people doing it? Is, is it for massive financial gain? Is it? Is are they getting off on it? Is it just like a day-to-day -day job? Or It's not art, is it? I mean, it's, I can't understand what the motivation is for, to be making a film like this. The first answer is that Soho, the Soho film industry, because, of course, in those days, this was still the heart of the film industry. Soho was a village and everybody knew everybody else. So you gave jobs to your friends. And even as late as the 80s, when the film industry was beginning to move out of Soho, people were still working together because they were friends. Yes, friends from various walks of life. I mean, some of them at that time were pornographers, you know, the girls, as they were known in those days, were often models, glamour models. There were people like me, I mean, God knows who I was. I called myself a, a writer, yes, yes. So what were they doing at this stage? Well, I think they thought that they could still make money because in the early days of sexploitation, People were making huge amounts of money from soft porn. You could make a film in this country, get your money back from British sales alone, and then everything else was profit. So this is the Compton film type people, those sort of... Well, Compton was a, a Soho-based company that did porn, but also because of its co-boss Tony Tenser wanted to do something better so famously he was the one who employed Roman Polanski. What happened? Sharon, the model you met last night, was attacked in the street. Attacked? Who would attack her? Maybe you can tell me. You recall how she was dressed. Santa Claus. I don't believe it. You took that girl outside dressed in that costume after all that's happened? You must be mad! Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. There, there are a couple of actors in this who have, you know, full careers that, you know, work re reasonably regularly from, say, the 60s to the 90s. Yes, and Alan Lake, of course. And Alan Lake. This now, was his last film. And he was deceased by the time the film came out, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he looks pretty ropey. He was in a bad way. I'm very, very distressed because of the death of his wife, Diana Dawes. And very sadly, you know, he put a, a gun to his head. So, yes, by the time this film came out, he was no more. So because it did take two years to shoot, therefore we don't know when particular scenes were shot. So the timeline of Diana Dawes' death this film coming out and Alan Lake's death it's all a bit jumbled up but it, so he 
could have been making shooting his scenes when Diana was still alive conceivably or it's unlikely I mean we don't know exactly when he shot his scenes but you may recall that he, he doesn't look at his best and I think he was going through a very rough time uh, whenever he shot this film because he was just so distressed performance wise pretty much everybody's terrible I think Alan Lake isn't too bad. Well, he gets just about gets by. He was a good actor, you know. He was did he? a load of trash. The, the amount of trash he did was just extraordinary. Who knows why? But the last part of his career was mostly TV and awful sex films. And he was only early 40s or something? Oh, when I'm he, afraid so. That's very, yes. very sad, yeah. A tragic life. Yeah. So, exploitation, as a term, this is an exploitation film. You kind of know it when you see it, don't you? When it's, yeah, uh, I suppose so. What actually is it? And why is it worthy of kind of academic and critical, serious contemplation? It just Isn't it just crap? <laughs> well, that's in a way irrelevant, Dom, because the surprising thing about these films is that they reflect the way we were. And, you know, we tend to forget that if we don't have films to remind us. And the reason academics latched on uh, to these films, and there are now, I believe, courses in exploitation films, is that they have socially redeeming qualities, you know. People are fascinated by an era that is now basically unrecorded apart from these films it was an era in which men were studs and women were bimbos slags slags foreigners were amusing uh, so were homosexuals <laughs> that's true though still isn't it's it? so long ago that if, if it weren't for these films we would have forgotten we ever lived through that era um, there are other films and this is why they've been preserved by the national film archive that have all kinds of clip joints and near beer joints that have all gone the old soho basically no longer exists the strip clubs have gone the peep shows that's why these films are important that's why we're talking about them i don't suppose you were a, a frequenter of peep shows and, that, and clip joints and that never kind of thing. went to a peep show no probably i was too scared in all honesty um, did go to the strip clubs, yes, uh, because I wanted to know what they were like. And the standard was very high, uh, always was. I mean, the most famous strip club was Raymond's Review Bar, and that was a, a spectacular, you know. All the money was up there on the stage. But even the lesser-known strip clubs, like Sunset Strip, put on a... Soul Survivor. It's still here in Soho. I think, as you say, it's the only one left. And they were good productions. The girls, uh, the performers were talented. They knew how to strip. So I was very impressed. And technically as well, you know, the lighting, the staging, they put a lot of work into those shows. I'm not surprised they were so popular. And ultimately, the punters got what they wanted, nudity. Yeah. If 
uh, somehow somebody said, "Oh, let's bring back peep shows," and it was, and they could do it. <laughs> Would people still go, or because people have it on the phones now? If they want, this to... is a wonderful concept, isn't it? Bringing back the peep show. I mean, for those who don't know what we're talking about, we ought to explain that you went into a booth, you put money into a slot, a shutter went up, and you could see a woman on the other side of the shutter taking her clothes off but then you know there was a clock ticking and then the shutter came down and unless you put more money in you couldn't see any more of her so basically people put a lot of money into those slots would people still like to do that i think in a post ironic world i think it could be an art installation right <laughs> and i think it would be very popular yeah and mostly be the punters would mostly be women because they're <laughs> nowadays yeah yes now as i understand it you were in your booth with a customer he was such a nice guy yeah yeah they always are and you were talking to him and the curtains opened the killer came in committed the crime and then just went out that's right did you see his face yes you did you saw his face so you can describe him uh, well no you see he was wearing a mask and there was blood on the glass it sort of covered everything up i see so you're telling me that a man can stand in front of you, commit a murder, then turn around and walk out, and you don't remember a single thing about it? So, David, I know you're a big fan of Christmas films. He's joking, listeners. There's a terrible Freeview channel that just shows Christmas films. Oh, my films God, yeah. From September onwards, they're all soppy romantic comedies with names like A Cozy Christmas by the Fire. Yeah. And you'd have to pull my teeth, threaten to, before I watched one of them. Okay. You, I'm going to level with the listeners. You don't like Christmas films. No, and you told me to pick ten Christmas films that were my favourites. I said, it's not possible. So I've got five. Five? Well, well done, though. That's good. And, um, okay, so what are your five, top five favourite Christmas films? They don't include It's a Wonderful Life. It's too obvious. No, okay, okay. So, uh, I'm going to go for On the Twelfth Day. Now, do you know about it? It's no. a short. So okay, it's only no. 20 minutes. And it's a film about the song On the Twelfth Day of Christmas My True Love Gave to Me. It was on at Christmas all the time when I was growing up so I grew to love it and now it's completely disappeared it's forgotten you're British or British American? directed by a dancer and choreographer called Wendy Toy who had early on a reputation for interesting shorts this was one of them but she then went on to features and they're all very mundane indeed but she was talented in short measures it's 1955 and this is a delightful and very funny film. I love it. So that's number five, and that is a better film than... It's Don't a Wonderful Life. Oh, Don't Open Till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it is. Okay. I'm going to pick Miracle on um, 34th Street, the original, original yeah. 1947 film. That's a nice film. It's, it's slyly funny. Edmund Gwen is 
for me the real Santa Claus and for those who haven't seen it that's what the plot's about it's about the real Santa Claus working as a department store Santa so it's a delightful concept and it's an early example of product placement because it's set in Macy's. Macy's is credited as the store and there's a lot of other department stores mentioned. So this must have been going through the lawyers for months because Edmund Gwen as Santa says things like, you don't want to buy that toy here. It's it's much better value at Bloomingdale's, which is an extraordinary thing for 1947. I love it. So three Christmas films to go. Will, don't know until Christmas, be in that top three. Let's find out. I'm trying to build tension here. I'm a great one for building tension as well, so I'm not going to tell you. Number three is, pause, It's White Christmas. Oh, very good. Oh, well, oh, controversial. Well, I'm going to um, first of all ask you why that's controversial. Is it because of the title? Well, isn't the song White Christmas not in White Christmas? In an, it's in another film. Yes, it's, that's true. This is a bit of a hodgepodge of Irving Berlin songs, I believe, and it's the same old story about, you know, kids putting on a show. But there's some great production numbers in it, which people may have forgotten. There's not much snow in it, that, that only turns up at the end. But the reason I'm mentioning it is that I want to be controversial and talk about one of its stars, Danny Kaye. Now, he was a star by this time, we're talking 1954. Even then, it was fairly known, well known in the business, that he was gay. And the writers seem to have colluded with him in introducing gay stuff into virtually all his films. And listeners to this may not know that it's even in White Christmas. Surely not. Yeah, I can see your face whitening <laughs> um, appropriately <laughs> enough as we're talking about White Christmas. But yes, you may have forgotten that he and... Bing Crosby sing Sisters in semi-drag. Danny is camping it up to the hilt. Bing Crosby is hating every minute. Yeah, I can't imagine that was his kind of cup of tea. But then, no, it wasn't. And then right at the end, he refuses to kiss co-star Vera Ellen and says, I'm not the marrying kind. Now, this became a euphemism used by the press when they were writing about gay celebrities. He's believed to be not the marrying kind. Yeah, Ivan Novello wasn't the marrying Ivan kind. Ivan Novello yeah. certainly wasn't. Yeah. And I wonder whether this is the first time it's been mentioned that this could be the origin of that phrase. And it's in, of all films, a Christmas film called White Christmas. Well, you heard it here first on episode something or other of <laughs> Soho Bites. Two films to go in the official David McGillivray Christmas film list. Will Don't Open Till Christmas be on it? Well, it's not number four, but it's another nasty Christmas film. Oh, which, which one's this up? one's good. Okay. It's Krampus. Oh, yes. Now, my belief is that this is a 2015 film. I think we knew nothing about Krampus until this film came out. So for the benefit of the few who now don't know who Krampus is, he's a demon who appears at Christmas in order to punish naughty children. 
he's very very i think he's a he let's just say they just in case but they are very well known in continental europe yeah is it german or scandinavian or teutonic certainly I'd never heard of Krampus until this film. I love the film because it's so funny and weird. I think it's huge fun. And then I did the research into Krampus and I was amazed that I'd never heard of this entity. But now he's well, they are well known, aren't they, in the UK? All of them. You've heard of them, all (laughs) of the Krampuses. (laughs) And so. At this point, I'll get my sound designer to drop in some kind of exciting drum roll, some kind of festive salutation, and are we going the? I can't remember if we're going five to one or one to five. You've had a few pints. We're going from five to one, Dom. Okay. We're now going to my favourite Christmas film, and it is, of course. Sorry, I'm just going to. Don't open. If you believe that, you'll believe (laughs) anything. The best Christmas film ever made is, of course, Scrooge. And I'm talking about the 1951 version. Alice Sim. Alice Sim is the Scrooge every other actor must study in order to be a tenth of what he was. Okay, yes, he does go over the top occasionally. But his Scrooge is just wonderful in that he makes you laugh. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it now because when he is redeemed... Uh, yeah, every time. I still yeah. cry. Me too, every time. There are not many films that make me cry. I can promise you that, Dom, you know me. But Alistair Sim in Scrooge does make me cry. Yeah, it's his way he sort of prances around. He's sort of, sort of little kind of jumpy. He's so happy. All versions of Christmas... Uh, Christmas Carol and... Sherlock Holmes there isn't a version of any of those that I don't like you know in all honesty there isn't as far as I'm concerned a bad version of Scrooge I even like Scrooged you know it's Christmas Day goodwill towards men and all that I hate Christmas I hate everything it stands for it's a shame won't you know of it don't you remember when you were a little boy listening to carol singers Sitting by the Christmas tree, waiting to open all those presents. Tinsel, colored fairy lights, plum pudding, snow falling. I said stop it! And then the arrival of Santa Claus. Right, I'm going to try and find some things that I like about the film. Things that are good. I think the very, very final moment of the film... Is Do we good. want to? Should we say spoiler alert? A lot of people will, will never have seen this film, Dom. I don't think you ought to reveal the ending. Okay, so there is an ending. There is an ending. But you yeah. like it? I like the the very last shot, which is I quite mean, a surprise. It's quite a surprise. I think it's quite well done, and it's it almost feels quite moving in a way because it's. Um, Others have said that. Have they? Yes. They're just emotional wrecks like Go me. Go on then. to IMDb. You're not the first person to say that. And just reversing slightly from that very last scene, towards, I mean, the last kind of 10 minutes where we find out who the killer is, I think we can say the killer is a male person. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay, I'll grant you that. It's obviously a male person. We do discover that this male person who's been killing Santa Claus, we, we kind of, we have a little flashback into his life. Could you, could you want to talk through that He's scene? got a motive. He has got a motive. Could you explain it? Because I think it's, I mean, crass and obvious, but I think it's quite well done in a way in its own terms. I don't also want to spoil it because I'm hoping that people are going to rush to YouTube after this podcast and watch this film. There's some motivation. I don't know whether Derek Ford invented this, whether this was all shot by another director... But, of course, as a child, our killer had an unpleasant Christmas experience. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. And because of that, he was tormented for the rest of his life and decided that he had to kill everybody dressed as Santa Claus. But not in previous years. No. (laughs) It hasn't been thought through. He must be like 45 or something, this male person. Yes. And this horrible Christmas took place when he was about 10. So the preceding 35 years, all Santas were safe in Soho. But now, on this one year, something snapped. At a time, conveniently enough, when there are Santa Clauses on every street corner. Um, Which is not the case in Soho today, I have to say. I haven't seen one Santa Claus on my trip to the Golden Lion today. There's been another killing. Big deal. If it's the chestnut vendor, it's already been in the papers. I haven't read the papers. You haven't called that lawyer back. My father's just been murdered. I can't concentrate. Yeah, right. Sorry. You have to come back into the real world sometime. I I want to say, because I, I write for this magazine, if you'd like to read more about Don't Open Till Christmas, there's a marvellous magazine called The Dark Side, and uh, a friend of mine called Matthew Conium has written a very funny article about Don't Open Till Christmas in issue 238, which I know is still available. And it's a marvellous introduction to the film. He likes it, doesn't he? Matthew kind of likes it in a post-ironic way, but he quotes a lot of the unspeakable dialogue, which, oh, we, yes. which we haven't discussed, but when it's written down, it, it, is, it is just so funny. And um, I don't know whether... Shall we quote some of this conversation between Edmund Purdom and Mark Jones. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Here's some of the deathless prose allegedly written by my former friend... (laughs) Former friend? What's his name again? (laughs) Derek Ford. He hated me. He hated me. So when you say former friend, you mean former as in you fell out or former as in... He didn't like what I wrote about him. Oh, okay. And he refused to appear in the film of my book. Edmund Purdom says... Do you need to warm up or anything? Or do you need to... That's exactly what the... Okay, okay no. sorry, start again. Purdom <laughs> says, that's exactly what the assistant commissioner was bellowing at me a moment ago. You know what I replied? It's early days yet for a pattern, I suppose. And trouble is, sir, this is Jones now. Trouble is, sir, the moment anyone puts on a Santa Claus costume, they become a sort of semi-holy figure don't they? Like, well, I mean, to the kids, anyway. The whole of the West End is crammed with Santa Clauses. What have you got on the latest? (laughs) 
I, I'm hoping that's going to be a marvellous crossfade to the actual dialogue. Good luck with that, Dom. But I prefer the David McGillivray version. So do I, so do I. Well, maybe that's a DVD extra. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are we talking about this film? Oh, because it's Christmas. I've had to... So somebody came up with this idea for this film. I'm sorry. I'm You're sorry. A, you are a Grinch about Christmas, aren't you? And a you little decided, bit, yeah. A little let's bit. Let's pick the worst Christmas film ever made... And you got me to talk about talk about it. Nobody else would discuss this film. I'm telling you. Oh, uh, this is a friend of mine, Jerry, Kate, Jerry. Hiya. I've met you before, or you were famous on uh, TV, eh? Well, let me take you both for a drink, eh? I'll see you boys later. I'm getting a newspaper. What's up? She was on TV. Her father was killed at the Christmas party. It's not the Christmas party, oh Jesus, Jesus. What did I say, Jesus Christ? Well, don't worry about it. She's just raw with grief. I grew up in Soho. We, we that's a school friend of mine and I, first came here when we were 16 and our eyes were on stalks. So at that time, so that's the mid-60s, it was the heart of the film industry and it was the heart of the prostitution industry as well. And that's why my father would never take me to Soho, because of the girls. They were on every corner. Now, this suggests that it was a very dangerous area. It wasn't. No, I don't think it was, no. Because if you didn't want what was for sale, nobody would bother you. No. So it was fascinating because of what Soho had by that time which was a wonderful cosmopolitan area a place where you could have a wonderful night out at all the nightclubs and restaurants then the gangsters moved in and by the time we get to the 70s Soho was under the control of the Maltese which everybody has completely forgotten about so this is the area era of police corruption which has been documented in many many books you know as an ordinary punter as I was I was aware that this stuff was going on behind closed doors but again it wasn't a threat it just made Soho more exciting there was not much violence that I was aware of I mean Every so often, you know, an isolated case would make the front pages because things occasionally got out of control, as in any area. But the Maltese were driven out and another guy called Jimmy Humphreys, who was paying off the police big time. It was a huge story in, I think, The People... Then we get to the 80s and Soho was magically cleaned up on the surface by Westminster Council. So I think towards the end of the 80s, wasn't it, really? It was into the early 90s. It was starting to be obvious that it was changing. In the era of Don't Open Till Christmas, yes, the clean-up was yet to happen. Things got out of control as far as corruption were concerned. Westminster had to move in. They closed down a huge amount of illegal establishments, which were then 
empty and that's when the gay industry moved in that's when we had gay soho that's when we had the first clubs now that era is all in the past as well there's virtually no gay clubs left in soho soho will always keep evolving even in the times when practically everything we're talking about was illegal you know including homosexuality everybody could come to soho and enjoy each other's company and yes we're talking about gay and straight and black and white and people from all over the world and drag queens and so forth that was the soho i grew up with and you can imagine how much i loved it especially at christmas time <laughs> thank you to david mcgillivray trudging through the rain to meet up with me at the noisy golden lion to talk about don't open till christmas a pleasure as always you'll find links to information about david and his work in the show notes for this episode where i have also as promised posted a link to the film in its entirety that's all at sohobitespodcast.com thanks also to the bbc's danny cox for providing the festive countdown of santa murders if you want to get in touch with the show you can find us on the platform formerly known as twitter the handle is at Bytes Soho. We're also now on threads at, at Soho Bites Podcast. And we're even on Blue Sky, which is a bit more complicated, at SohoBytes.bsky.social. Or you could send an email to SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show with your good wishes, you can leave a nice review or a star rating at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you prefer to support the show with some of your lovely money, go to SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I'll see you in the new year, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.